So, retrospectors, what historical events are we ticking off on this week's run of Today in History? Well, Monday is the anniversary of the day Roger first publishes famous thesaurus. Then on Tuesday, we say happy birthday, Mr. Potato Head. On Wednesday, the extraordinary stories of the child soldiers who fought in the American Civil War. On Thursday, how King James changed the word of God. And on Friday, what did spam emails look like in 1978? We discuss this and more on Today in History with the retrospectors. Ten minutes every weekday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, Man fans. Ollie Man here with The Modern Man, the monthly magazine for your ears. Here's what's coming up. It almost was a bit like a video game, I suppose, in that you're there one minute and you, you just see, you know, people getting blown to smithereens in front of you. Coming under fire whilst watching the action on a 60-inch screen. The realities of modern warfare in the British Army. Plus... They've made me come so hard that I am propelling them like circus performers from my coochie cannon. Alex Fox gets mucky in the bedroom by accident. And Ollie Pitt goes child-free. It's all to come in this edition of The Modern Man. But first, your letters, and we've had loads of really lovely feedback regarding my interview with Julie Pankhurst last month. Thank you for that. Uh, Sean says, The Friends Reunited story is brilliant, and Julie offered such a different perspective than the usual tech entrepreneur startup guy who goes on to be a cheesy motivational speaker. Uh, Catherine says, Ollie, I enjoyed your interview with Julie so much. It's great to know that getting a shit ton of money doesn't ruin everyone. Her approach to life was great. Uh, indeed. I really enjoyed making uh, last month's episode, uh, and I'm so glad we finally made it happen. As I said in the show, it's something that we've been working on for years. Uh, Julie was a most reluctant interviewee initially, uh, and somewhat throughout, (laughs) but it was worth it, I think. Um, So thanks, glad you enjoyed it. Um, A small housekeeping matter now. Uh, Henceforth, we are shifting the release date of this podcast. Okay, so from next month onwards for various tedious logistical reasons that you don't need to be party to, we are going to be releasing each episode on the 10th of the month. No longer the 1st, now the 10th. So our next episode's going to be September the 10th, then October the 10th, November the 10th. You know how it works. You know the months of the year, are you? Uh, Well, you'll still get 12 episodes a year, but they're now going to come out on the 10th, like uh, Empire Magazine used to when I was a teenager. Perhaps still does. I've no idea. So, uh, yeah, circle that in your special file of facts that you keep under your pillow with all the release dates of your favourite podcasts in it. Uh, And uh, whilst you're at it, do write down a reminder as well that this podcast, although it's free to download, be our guest, isn't free to produce. So if you can afford to contribute financially to this show, please do dig in. Pledge whatever you can. The price of a pint of beer would be spiffing. All the links are on our website, modernmanwith2ends.co.uk. Just click beer money. And honestly, every penny helps support this show. We are an independent production. Thanks very much uh, to all the man fans who have chucked us some cash this month. Uh, they include Mark Gibbs, Catherine Gorman, Wen Fu, Magdalena, Robert Dufton. And uh, my favourite contribution on PayPal this month was from Jody Taylor in Michigan, who simply wrote, uh, you know, in the little accompanying note that you get to leave on PayPal. I always read them, by the way. Uh, Ollie, thanks for helping me get through this shit show. <laughs> you are welcome, Jody. Uh, helping anyone get through this shit show is what motivates me to get out of bed in the morning. Uh, coming up on today's show, not a shit show, uh, you will learn what a biomechanical cascade is. You'll learn why you should never get drunk at the Tower of London. And you'll learn the frankly preposterous reason Ollie Peart hasn't had his hair cut yet. Let's go. 
Time for the zeitgeist, your trends tested, with the man who I feel we've all heard over the last five years of the show slowly earn his beard. It's Ollie Peart. I'm much wiser than I was five years ago. Since our last episode, have you been following through on your newfound enthusiasm for cycling? Yeah, kind of. I signed up to get one of these those switch things which you can put onto an old bike. It's basically an electric bike conversion thing. Oh, yeah, yeah, you were talking about turn that. Turn my yeah. old bike into a new one. Got the email saying, yeah, you can order it now. I was like, the price is good. And then they had a delivery charge. Then they had the VAT. Then right. they said, oh, this is the rubbish model if you want the All right, model, all right, this isn't your more. call. I just wanted to ask whether you've been cycling. And it sounds like the answer is... No. I mean, you haven't been on a bike, have you? You've been on the internet mm-hmm. professing an intention to ride a bike in the future and you failed. That's what's happened. That, that's basically what cycling is, though, in 2020. So, it's fine. <laughs> All right. Time to uh, check in with how you fared with this month's challenge. You'll recall it's from man fan Hannah, uh, who doesn't have kids and doesn't want kids and challenged you, Ollie, to investigate the trend of being child-free by choice. And it is genuinely something of a trend, isn't it? Yeah, and you may have noticed, actually, since you set the challenge, there's been quite a lot of press about Child Free. The Guardian been running a series on it, uh, a comic book series. The Lancet have released a paper about uh, the declining fertility rates, especially in America. It's like dropped 35% in the last year. Uh, yeah, I saw figures in Italy are down as well. So, like, I can't remember yeah. something like point four children used to be the average and now it's 1.6 or something people having children later in life this kind of thing but people are still having children but they're having fewer children a lot of a a lot of the time but child free is very different you know child free is saying i don't want kids and i'm never going to have kids you're making a conscious choice i if i'm honest i had very little understanding of it so the first thing i did was went on twitter just to see if i could be enlightened about this world somehow and there were literally hundreds of Twitter accounts called Child Free. Loads of them. And they were giving me very little information. It was basically just people saying, "Don't, I don't want kids. I hate kids. Kids in the supermarket are Oh, really? really That's the number one thing. It's not save the world, save the planet. It's, I mean, uh, isn't it really irritating when a kid kicks your seat? There is a bit of that. But in my hunt online, I stumbled across uh, a Child Free subreddit. And it has 1.1 million followers on it it's almost as many as were designing video games when you went on that subreddit maybe they're the same people (laughs) it's the same people anybody that designs video games just doesn't have kids and doesn't want kids because they just don't have time yeah (laughs) as you discovered it fits fits their lifestyle choice why not (laughs) i think we've stumbled across something there yeah Yeah. just the same people i started having a flick through this subreddit and a lot of it is just people ranting about the way that people just assume that you want to hear about their kids and stuff so there's quite a lot of ranting going on so I thought, I'm just going to have to engage with some of the people on here. I'm, go- I'm going in. So I said, look, I'm researching for a podcast. It was very upfront, very professional. And I want to find out more about the child-free movement, I called it. That was a fucking mistake. <laughs> Are there lots of people that feel a bit too independent and uh, free-thinking to be part of a movement then? It's, Even though they've signed a- up to a forum. Exactly. It's not yeah. a movement. And, and I got... I got maybe 30 or 40 responses and they're, a lot of them are very, very long. But then they throw the question back in your face and this is what I found really interesting about it from the off. And it's, why are you asking me why I don't want kids? The question shouldn't be, why do I not want kids? The question should be, why do you want kids? And almost every single one of them has made the point that if you want to have children, you should seriously ask yourself why. 
are you in a position where you can raise children? Have you considered the, the economic consequence? Have you considered the environmental consequence? And a lot of the discussion on there uh, between people is about exactly that. It's like, look, you know, I feel like I'm my conscious choice is, is, is a benefit to the planet. I'm doing a good thing by not mm. having children. And talk um, me through that a bit. Have you found compelling evidence as to why basically we don't want to overpopulate the world? Like it's a legitimate thing to say, no more children. Yeah, in the Western world, the carbon footprint of a kid every year is 58.6 metric tonnes of CO2, which means nothing to me. But if you fly from London to New York, you are, as a single passenger, responsible for 0.67 tonnes. So it's a lot. Mm. And that's every year. That's almost 60 tonnes of CO2. It's not the same in other countries. It's much less in like Malawi, where it's like 0.07. It's such a delicate balance, that, though, isn't it? Because you, you can understand that argument on the one hand, save the earth, don't have children. But what about looking after older people that are alive? Like, what do you value, the environment or humans? Because, you know, if we don't have kids, there's no one there to look after older generations either. I actually spoke to one of our listeners, uh, Robert. He got in touch and um, I asked him, exactly that question I said to him look do you not think about when you get older so I, was, I wanted to speak to him on a personal level rather than do you not think about older people I was like mm. when you're older who's going to look after you and he's like well that's, uh, that's a pretty selfish point of view you're going to bring somebody into the world to look after you when you're older and also I have more time on my hands I have a pension because I'm career focused I'm earning money I will pay for my own care when I get older mm. and it kind of makes sense but the other thing that he's thought about and he's seriously considering is adoption you know why not adopt there are children out there that need parents so his personal view he was like look i don't bemoan anybody that has kids but i personally think for me to have kids is is not the right move for me and i and i was i questioned him on that and said like like, how committed come on what what if your mind changes and say well it can't change because at the age of 25 he's 31 at the age of 25 he had a vasectomy he wow. was that sure that he didn't want to have children that he went for it. And he told me that um, his doctor was like, are you sure? Mm. Are you sure you want this? He's like, yeah. And everybody I've spoken to, it's that, that same attitude that they want to change. They hate being questioned as to their reasons of why they make this choice. They just want it to be normal. Why can I just not want kids? I had a, a really passionate desire to have a child. That was really important to me. It actually really wasn't, as I've talked about on the show before, particularly important for me to have two. I was kind of indifferent as to whether we had a second one or not. Love him as I do. I really wanted one. And I can only describe that as like a biological impulse. I felt it very, very strongly. And I, I don't believe in God. So I attribute that to evolutionary biology. I attribute that to the furtherance of our species being something that is absolutely central to the way I'm genetically constructed and the way I think and behave. But that doesn't mean there's something wrong with someone if they don't feel that. I think if you if I felt that so strongly, it makes sense that other people would feel the opposite strongly, doesn't it? Um, so I, I, I do credit that possibility. I think because there are so many children in the world, unfortunately, who are unwanted or who come through wars or who are given up for adoption and don't have homes. And I know this is a controversial thing to say, it's just what I felt personally. I felt if, if my partner and I weren't able to have children, I personally felt that at that point we'd adopt rather than do IVF and all those other things because yeah. I, I just felt like we'll give it a go. And if it's possible, it would be my preference to have our own. 
But if it wasn't possible, then yeah, I do buy that argument about adoption. Well, his his approach, Robert's approach in particular, was is, is very analytical. And he said he approaches everything in that way. So he would literally be like, right, what is the benefit for me having a child, my own child? And he can't see any. Economically, it makes no sense. doesn't make sense from an environmental point of view as far as he's concerned. So he's thinking about the bigger picture, but also about his own personal life. And he's got a partner he's been with since he was that age. I said he's 31 now and he was 25 at the time. They've been together that whole time and it just fits their lifestyle. Mm. I do wonder as well, and I've, I've never met Robert, so, you know, Robert, I know you're listening. I'm not talking about you here necessarily. But friends of mine that have chosen not to have children very often, when I've had a conversation with them about it, and I don't want to be insensitive and ask them when they're not ready to talk about it, but very often what it comes down to really is something in their own childhood wasn't particularly fun Mm. or someone in their own family is someone that they resent and they don't want either them to become when they become a parent or they don't want their children to possibly even have those genes you know there's something in their own past that they don't want to manifest I do wonder if you come from a traumatic background whether that also is more likely to make you think twice about it I mean that didn't seem to be the case with who I spoke to Jenny was another one of our listeners that I spoke to and, and I mean she she loves hanging out with her friends kids for example she is a teacher so she works with kids mm. and um, and unlike others especially on Reddit she's very very open and wants to talk to people about it she wants to sort of change the conversation so that we are talking about ch- the child free I was going to call it a movement again I'm not going to do that uh, but talking about collective child free people, collective the child free collective. collective yeah yeah, yeah. I could see that that's a great name for a band um, but she said said to me look I just I just don't want kids I even asked her about the environmental and economic things she's like no that wasn't a reason for me although I consider that to be really important mm. uh, that's not the reason I just don't want kids um, but unlike, especially some of the people on Reddit that I spoke to, she didn't mind being asked that question. In fact, she would actively encourage it. She wants people to ask her why she doesn't have kids so that she can kind of set the record straight. She doesn't want it to be a taboo anymore. She wants people to understand it. But I'd feel terrible as part of the media that talks about being a parent, I suppose, you know, in our own How to Be a Dad episodes. If anything that I've said about the difficulties and challenges of being a parent actually did put anyone off. I mean, because you can say that in jest, can't you? Like, oh God, it sounds like everyone who has kids sort of turns to alcohol and um, can't wait for the children to go to sleep and are permanently exhausted and their relationship's under strain. Mm-hmm. A- and all of that is true. Like, all my friends who have kids, that that is the case. But along with that, for most of the parents I know, comes an incredible feeling of joy of having children which even amongst the people that you wouldn't expect particularly would be family people beforehand and maybe even didn't plan to have a family, tend to experience in some form. You know, you say there's a taboo in in talking about why aren't you having children, but I, I almost think a lot of parents rein it in a bit in terms of how much they talk about what a great feeling it can be. Out of respect to people who can't have children or who have various different reasons why they don't want to have children, don't actually talk publicly that much about how wonderful it is. Uh, and it's it's really interesting to me that a lot of people that don't have kids feel an onslaught around them of everyone saying, be a parent, be a parent, isn't it wonderful being a parent? Whereas I kind of think as a parent, parents don't talk enough about the simple pleasures of like just watching a child grow up around you and the meaning it can give to your life. It, it doesn't actually get talked about as much as it sometimes is felt. I mean, what you've said marries up exactly with, um, there was a study done by this guy called John Dick. He basically polled a million parents and asked them about their happiness levels and all that kind of stuff and parents do tend to be less happy in general you know getting less sleep those kinds of things however 
they concluded that that's probably because it's really difficult for them to explain the sort of euphoria, for want of a better phrase, mm. that they experience from having children. And I think that you say that that a conversation maybe parents should be more open about that but it might simply be because it's really difficult to express how that feels you know you could you could try and explain it to me till the cows come home but i don't think i'll fully understand it unless i have kids myself so that might be one of the reasons that well that's, that's your challenge for next month Ali. <laughs> have a kid <laughs> have a child. <laughs> you know that aside their reasons for not wanting to have children mm. will always outweigh what you're describing there or trying to describe. I'm just interested to explore if people are coming to that conclusion based on evidence, whether really the anecdotal evidence around them truly represents what it's like to be a parent. Yeah, but the, the, the evidence that they're they're citing, you know, it, it does stack up in favour of not having children. The environmental mm. impact, the economic impact, the health impact. If you're a parent, you're less healthy. You have fewer friends. Marriages suffer. Relationships suffer. You know, all of that is backed up by many many studies so you can see where they're coming from but the interesting thing about child free is even though a lot of people feel this way it's a little bit like vegetarianism it's not all vegetarians of course but they don't necessarily bemoan or have a problem with people having kids in fact they don't they just want the conversation to change the other way and they want people to be more considerate when thinking about having children yeah that's the difference and also we're talking about this as well we might on a show called The Modern Man in 2020 with two men discussing it, very much from the perspective of couples, as if the man and the woman in a heterosexual couple are equal in deciding whether or not to have a child. But, I mean, it is different for women, isn't it? The reason that there's a pressure on women is because it often does come down to a choice of career progression or becoming a Mm mum and the biological imperative, like the the questions from family and friends saying, are you going to have children when you get into your mid-30s is motivated by the fact that when you get to 40-odd, your ovaries will not produce children anymore. And that's, you know, that is different for women, isn't it, than it is for men who, even the blokes who say, I'm not going to have any kids, might get to 50 and change their minds. You can just assume that that kind of uh, discrimination doesn't really happen. But Jenny mentioned not that long ago... uh, I don't know if you remember this, but during the Conservative leadership election, was it Andrea Ledson said about Theresa May? She can't be a leader because she can't have kids. And actually, if you think about it, that's absurd. She didn't quite say that. She said, I'm a mother, so I think I'd be better at understanding basically the needs of families than someone who's never had children. That was the point. But but, But why? Yeah, sure. I mean, it would be like someone going up against David Blunkett saying, well, I have eyes, so I understand what it's like to see stuff. I mean, it was ridiculous. But all of this child on the child-free side, slightly different. There's a far more extreme version of child-free, which is called antenatalism. Basically, any child, having a child, birth is a negative thing. And it is morally abhorrent for you to bring a child into this world because it's bad for the climate. You're uh, contributing to overpopulation. There's war, famine. And by having kids, you are contributing to a worse planet basically so they are different and what about your own personal journey here ollie because uh you and the missus had you you revealed on the podcast last month not really made any firm decisions about this despite time ticking on (laughs) how has this journey affected your thinking you're such a breeder ollie with lingo (laughs) like that and no you're right we haven't made a choice and but it has made me think a lot more about if that time comes where we start thinking oh do we want to have a kid i think i'll 
I'll raise those questions with myself, and I don't think I would have done that before. I will think more about the. You raise them with yourself. No, but I will. You dare raise them with your fiance? Is the point? No, no, no. If she's like, right, time's ready. We're having a kid. Are you going to raise these issues with her? Is the point? Yes. I'll just say, look, you know, how do we how do we feel about it? You know, this is this is the wider consequence of us having a child. How do we feel about it? And if we conclude that actually we're all right, we're going to be great parents, and we can live with the fact that it might be environmentally damaging for the rest of the planet, fine. You know, that's something that I live with in the same way that I get on an aeroplane and fly to Malaga. But but I will think about it a lot more. Will you also have a different answer socially, you and your fiancé, when other people, colleagues, friends, ask you innocently whether you're planning on having any children? Mm. Why should I have children? You know, I think I've found it really interesting throwing the question back because actually if you want to have children and you think you're going to be a great parent, you know, forget your views on child-free and all that kind of stuff in the environment. Actually, you should genuinely ask yourself why. Because I think it's a positive thing to do because you could come out with answers and conclude, actually, it is, this will be the best fucking thing I ever do in my life. This is amazing. I can't wait to do this because of this, this and this, and it'll be brilliant. But you might also think twice. And actually, you could have dodged a bullet because you might be like, do you know what? I'm not ready. This isn't right. And the conversation just needs to change slightly. Because it's at the moment, having kids is just sort of instantly lauded as a good thing. You have kids, people say, well done you. They literally do. People come up to me. A woman came up to me in uh, HomeSense last week when I was pushing my baby around in a trolley and said, well done. Well well done for ejaculating into a vagina. (laughs) Okay, time to find out what your challenge for next month is. It's from Manfan Dan from Suffolk, who says, over lockdown, I found myself showering less and tried not washing my hair as much as I normally do. Gross. I'm thinking of continuing this once the office reopens in the autumn. I don't know if this is a cry for help or a challenge. Yeah, God. <laughs> but anyway, I'd like Ollie to test the waters for me. I know there's a trend for not washing your hair. I'd like to see if he can go for a whole month without washing at all. At all? <laughs> That's what the man says. For ha- for what? For how long? A month. He said a month. I mean, actually, of course, you've got six weeks now till uh, September the 10th. But I mean, you know, maybe that would be a little too much. Can I wash anything at all? Um, <laughs> I, I don't know if I feel comfortable with me, it being my role to tell you what you can and can't wash specifically. I just, I mean... Well, I we talk, the, we're talking about my cotton this... balls, right? Can I wash my <laughs> cotton balls? <laughs> the goal of this challenge, I believe, mm. is to experiment... See if your hair feels more natural by not putting shampoo on it. See if, um, after inevitably a few days of sweaty odour, you're able to produce some sort of, I don't know, bodily reaction that protects your natural fragrance. And then if it's uncomfortable, if things are itchy and rumbly, I'm not going to tell you never to wash down there again. I just think that the point is to to discover for our audience. The the timing's awful because it's summer and... I'm growing my hair. I've decided to grow my hair oh. in, 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 until we get a vaccine for COVID. Okay, why? What's? I mean, how are those two things linked? I thought it'd be a really good visual representation for how long it takes to develop a vaccine because I haven't cut my hair since March. Okay, but why would the world's scientific researchers turn to your hair as a visual representation? I mean, they won't, Ollie. It's just a personal project of mine that I'm going to enjoy apart from the next month where my hair's going to smell like the inside of a bin. You're right that in a way that's bad timing, but in another way, you're going to be generating lots of, you can tell I don't have the language for this, Yes. follicles, oils, I don't know, whatever. You know, things are going to grow out of you, new things, and (laughs) this will be a good time to test it. (laughs) 
you know, you're going to replenish and rejuvenate. Things are going to grow out of you. Things are literally going to be growing out of your face and every orifice you have. It's just, it just doesn't sound nice, does it? But thanks. Yes, I'll give it my best. Okay, just a reminder, by the way, if you have a trend you'd like Ollie to test out on this here show, then head over to our website, modernmanwith2ends.co.uk and fill out the feedback form. Uh, right, time for our record of the month. It is a welcome return to the podcast for the band Another Sky. Uh, they've got a new album out on August the 7th, and it includes this great track, Fell in Love with the City, out now. Here is an interesting fact that probably passed you by. Uh, Back in March, just before lockdown, applications to the British Army surpassed 100% of its annual recruitment target for soldiers. That's the first time that's happened for eight years. And it followed a controversial advertising campaign that you probably do remember. It was the one that targeted gamers um, with slogans like phone zombies, snowflakes and selfie addicts on the posters. The implication was, basically, modern warfare isn't just about running around with a gun. Nerds and techies and coders, you're now needed to fight for your country too. But who are the young men getting these jobs? And what impact does it go on to have on their lives? Julian Pereira is now a freelance journalist and entrepreneur, but before that served in the army as a JTAC. Don't worry, he'll explain what that is in a moment. Like many young soldiers, his introduction to the military was actually as a child, joining the cadet force, partly to give him some respite from a difficult life back home. So I uh, grew up in Ipswich and uh, had six brothers and sisters. And very early on in my childhood, things started, you know, going the wrong way and that my parents split up. And then my mother was then put in a situation where she then had to make some real tough decisions. And one of those decisions was for myself and my younger brother to be put in the uh, care system um, for a short period of time, which wasn't the best experience. There was violence in the home and that, you know, my parents arguing and I witnessed that from a young age. And, and I, I think those things yeah, really did affect me. I, I kind of wanted something new. I wanted to get out of the home. And, and I suppose I'd done that when I was slightly older at the age of 13. I then decided to join the Army Cadet Force. So for me, when I went on to join the military, I I didn't really understand the implication because I was so young. I was 16 at the time and my mum, she had to sign the paper, in fact, for me to join because I joined under 18 and I never really took into consideration that she really didn't want me to join, but she'd done it solely because she probably didn't want to upset me or have in years to come me tell her that it was her fault if anything went on. So she kind of reluctantly signed that. Did she try and warn you off it at all? I mean, she was slightly worried. She she did the Iraq War had um, a year prior in two thousand and three had begun. She just made she wanted to make sure I was doing it for the right reason. So she quizzed me, and I and I said, look, this is 
this is really the only thing I want to do now. Um, I'd made my mind up by that point. So no, she didn't really hold me back because like I say, I don't think she wanted that, that regret in years to come that I would, you know, resent that. How did she feel about it later? I mean, did she parade you around in your uniform? Was she proud of you? Oh, absolutely. I mean, bloody pictures of me in uniform up all around the home, telling her friends that I mean, I was a Queen's guard. I just found it all embarrassing. Every time I went home, I used to take them down. And then as soon as I'd leave to go back to the army, she would be putting them back up. I didn't realise, I suppose, as well, the, the, the effect it would have on her in that when I then started deploying away on operational tours to Afghanistan, just how much you know how it was it wasn't until I came home for a two-week break from Afghanistan and and just as she took me to the train station to send me back she she broke down and yeah that really um that really affected me and that I, I, I never prior to that had really realized what what my mum had gone through to get me to I suppose that position you know she'd done everything right for me growing up yes there was you know problems in the home and things growing up but she'd done everything you know she's my inspiration she'd done everything right by us in that she worked uh, two or three jobs just to support such, you know, a large family, even though she was a single parent for the majority of it. And uh, I think I got my work ethic from her in that she, you know, was always willing to work hard to provide for, for us. Do you have a relationship with your father now? So my my father, unfortunately, um, he, he, he resorted to um, drinking alcohol and uh, he wasn't the healthiest of person. He passed away, unfortunately, while I was in the army. But I've for me that was just an awful time because we had a bit of a relationship when I was growing up but I didn't see him very often and I just bloody regret not not ever you know speaking to him more but I know he had demons you know he he came over from Guyana as a young boy around age five and he, he moved to Suffolk and he, and he got brought up here and I know he had a tough time with that it wasn't until I was clearing out his house that um I seen an old school photo of him in Suffolk and uh, he was literally the only black kid in that school um, all lined up there like it was some sort of military photograph and I just thought to myself I couldn't imagine what what he would have gone through in that childhood. He was quite a nervous person. I, I just really regret not speaking to him more and finding more out about his childhood and finding more about him as a person really. You started as a Grenadier Guard, is that right? Yeah, it was. so I'd finished school and then in 2004 I went to Harrogate where I trained as a what you call a boy soldier um so i spent a year there and then while i was at harrogate I, I i chose to then join the grenadier guards and then in 2005 i finished in catrick and that's when i then was first posted to london in central london and my first part of my role was standing guard outside buckingham palace for two years i mean that's the cushy job isn't it? it or it seems so from the outside you're you're a tourist attraction yeah, absolutely. I mean, it is. You're seen as a tourist attraction. Not pe- don't, not many people, and even myself, really understood. You're a young soldier. You're getting paid, you know, eleven hundred pounds a month, and you're you're based in central London, right next to Buckingham Palace in the barracks there. Um, so it is. Yeah, and it's it's a really enjoyable posting, and life seems good. One of my first guards, in fact, was at Windsor Castle, and I was posted at the back. We're never expecting to see any royalty. I know it could happen, but my first ever experience was actually the Queen herself. She was. Uh, she was, uh, yeah, with the dogs, with the corgis outside the back, and she was loading them into the Jaguar, um, trying to get them in the car uh, early in the morning. So I'd I done the customary thing. I went into the present arms where you have to hold your rifle out to your front and you're saluting the queen, I suppose. And uh, she was shouting at the corgis. I just felt it so surreal. I'd never seen the queen in this environment where she was just dressed like any old lady, like your nana down the road. Um, and she was there shouting at her corgis to get in the car. And I thought, well, this is weird. She's just got in the driving seat. And it was before I even knew that the queen would drive herself around 
Um, and she just pulls away. But as she, before she pulls away, she just says, good morning, guardsmen. I just didn't know what to do. I just froze in that position. No response whatsoever because I was just so scared that if I said anything, would I get in trouble? Or If, the, if it ever happens to us, what is the right thing to do if the Queen greets you and you're a bearskin guardsman? To be fair, you should, you know, good morning, mum. You could reply back. But as long as you're presenting arms and you're holding your weapon out to your front in, in that salute, uh, in the royal salute, then you're absolutely fine. As long as you do that, you could, I suppose, respond with, yeah, good morning, mum. I just didn't know what to do. And then she went zooming off down the long walk in Windsor. And I just thought this is absolutely surreal. I mean, how ceremonial is that role? Because it is a tourist attraction. It is something that people go and see. You are wearing, with respect, the silly hat, you know. At the same time, as you say, you're presenting a weapon. And I presume, in modern terms, the point of you being there is if a bad guy with a bomb strapped to him jumps over the fence, isn't it? I mean, that's what you're there for. Had you been trained for that? Oh, well, absolutely, yeah. So you're first and foremost, you're a, you're a trained infantry like anyone else. You're, you're trained to fire that rifle. You're trained to use that bayonet. I think a lot of people see it on the front of it. It's, oh, this is just ceremonial, but they don't understand the actual level of security that are at the royal palaces and provided by the guards. Um, yes, nowadays, it's it's a mutual role between the, uh, the, the police, armed police, and also the military. But if the police couldn't handle any situation, you know, the army's there ready with ammunition, live, live rifles, and good to go. Did you feel emotionally ready to do that? I mean, what you're being asked to do at 16, 17 then is is potentially give your life to save the royal family. That's the job. Absolutely. I mean, every single time you get put onto the sentry position, um, and again, people won't see because they're from a distance, but when your corporal is posting you out on that sentry position, he reads you a set of orders. That set of orders rarely changes and it's drummed into your head. You need to know every single word on the orders board and what you are there to do. Which is what? My mission is to man my post in order to deter any would-be aggressor that'll show status to the royal family. Well, that's pretty specific, isn't it? Yeah. I was never really called for. You had the odd incident at the Tower of London, and most of the time, to be honest, 90% of the time where you would get crashed out with ammunition to go and investigate was drunk people going into the moat of the Tower of London after a night out on the beer. Yeah, people do not consider that risk, do they, when they have... (laughs) No, they just think, the no, they think <laughs> the it's uh, funny to jump in and, you know, all the lasers and the alarms get triggered. And again, you don't know what, what you're going to or what you're, you know, the situation. But uh, yeah, you just think, goodness, is this a drunk person or is this someone actually trying to come and do harm or, or do something? Yeah, I've never thought about that before. You'd be better <laughs> off drunkenly breaking into a police station, <laughs> yeah. actually, wouldn't you? Than Absolutely. The Tower of London. That's some pretty serious yeah. level of security. The battalion got called for an Iraq tour in 2003 and... There was a part of me that was just like, oh, I didn't get to go. I, I stayed in London doing Troop in the Colour and all those types of ceremonial events. And uh, I just thought, I don't want to be a tourist attraction no more. I want to go with my friends. And, and I think the main thing is because my friends got sent to Iraq. I didn't get to go. So I kind of, I, I was not happy with it, let's say the least. And uh, they got back from Iraq. I still didn't go. And then next thing you know, um, the Afghanistan tour um, then came around. And that was in 2007. Um so the powers had been there the year before. They'd just moved down into Helmand. They then come home. The Royal Marines took over and spent the winter there. And then it was the Grenadier Guards' turn. And uh, I ended up joining the battalion. So I'd done Troop in the Colour in June of 2007. Uh, and then two weeks later, I found myself in Helmand on my first tour as a 19-year-old uh, man. And uh, it was an eye-opener. Scary, I imagine. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I, I mean, goodness the nerves flying into Afghanistan alone. I mean, I, there was there was guys there who were returning back from their R&R. They'd already been out there fighting and that was my first ever experience. And I remember 
vividly flying into Camp Bastion at the time and the RAF doing their manoeuvres so they didn't get shot out of the sky and it was quite evasive manoeuvring. And I uh, threw up into my helmet on the plane down and I just remember these, vet- well, let's say veterans, people who had been out there and they were just laughing at me. I was just a bit like, I didn't know whether it was a bug or I was just so nervous, but I think it was probably a mix of both really. I was I was yeah highly nervous about what was flying into an active war zone, I suppose. I remember being flown in then by Chinook uh, down into Helmand and I went straight into a 10-day operation. Yeah, where it's just, just fierce fighting, you know, close engagement with the enemy. I was on foot. I was a general purpose machine gunner. Um, so I was carrying a quite a large machine gun. Um, and yeah, my job was to provide fire support. And then and then obviously later on in the tour, I then went into a, into a roles where I'd then just carry the normal standard issue SA-80 rifle, uh, clearing compounds, grenades, and, you know, get up and getting up close and personal with the enemy. I mean, it's so different, isn't it, to standing outside Windsor Castle with what is effectively a ceremonial weapon? I mean, it was, it, it, it was, it was, it was, it was worlds away. It really was worlds away. Um, I just remember sitting there on my first day of the operation, waiting to get called forward and just, the, well, I'd never, never seen a dead body before, but I, I seen a, a, a dead insurgent being, um, stretched past me of the medics medics trying to british medics trying to save his life even though he'd been shot he was now no longer a threat medics were trying to save his life he was wearing a white um traditional gown and it was just completely covered covered in claret and i just remember just thinking to myself what the fuck have i got myself into did you did you feel regret that you'd signed up or was it more just like it's overwhelming (sighs) oh goodness it was i mean i'm getting hairs on the back of my neck stand up now i just remember just thinking especially when we went forward not long after that moment. And um, I started then hearing the crack and thump and the the, the RPGs. Um, my first engagement was we were getting engaged with, by mortars, uh, RPG grenades and, and small arms fire. And I just remember to this day those crack and thump of the rounds going over your head and just thinking, fuck, there's someone at the end of that who's literally trying to take my life. And, and it was just a million things going from my head, like, what the hell did I do? Why the hell did I join the army? What, what am I supposed to do? I, I just, I didn't have any answers. And I just remember this corporal and I'm still very good friends with him now who just uh, gave me a bit of a clip around the ear and just said, look, Pez, you need to, you need to sort your shit out. You need to get your shit together. You know, you you know what to do. And that was it. He pointed out where the enemy were, what was, and I yeah, obviously then started engaging with the, um, with the uh, machine gun. Did you get to see the results of what your gun was doing? Not on all occasions. So that was one thing that the enemy were very good at. They were very good at their cativac drills. Um, what you may find, you may find weapon systems laying around. You may see blood. Um, but the last thing they wanted, and it would be the same as us, when we rolled up on that position, um, that they wanted to carry their enemy dead or their enemy uh, or their, their their colleagues away from what was then British soldiers, Afghan National Army soldiers, then rolling up on that position. What was it like when you came home? It was really strange. You had you know, a good eight, nine, ten weeks sometimes, just solid ten weeks off, you know, go and sort yourself out. They would fly you back to do decompression, so you'd get flown into Cyprus. Um, and back then it was a case of there was a shipping container full of beer, as much as you wanted. They'd open the, open the uh, doors of it, just say, right, get out of your system. That was the type of attitude, or it seemed to come across as that attitude. And you went there and you got pissed for 24 hours, 36 hours, they would clean all your uniform. All your uniforms would get taken off you. You'd wear shorts and T-shirts. Um, so when you then flew back into the country, you weren't still wearing the, you know, your, your camouflage uniform covered in God knows what. Yeah, you would then fly back to the UK and then be told, look, there you go, guys. Um, yeah, get yourself on leave. 
that was it. You're back reunited with your family and friends. Uh, but it's tough. It turned into a you know absolute drinking session. Absolute drinking session. I think a lot of people, including myself, use use that time to, and and I think a lot of it was probably to kind of co- either cover or yeah, just forget. I suppose what you've just been through. What was probably such a you know an, an awful time. It's difficult, isn't it? Because on the one hand, objectively, that is a way to deal with difficult circumstances, isn't it? Go out, have a good time, and even get drunk. But if you're doing that for six weeks and you're not talking about it, that's obviously then it then becomes a bad thing. Yeah, no, it, it definitely was, and and I think half the problem you you found really was that because because of the constant cycle of operational tours, I knew before I would, had got back from Afghanistan at uh, you know late stage of two thousand and seven, I knew that I was being posted back out there in two thousand and nine, two years later, to do another tour. So in that two years, it was kind of like, and it's only now looking back in reflection that I realised that goodness I never really seen myself having a future or, or anything because all I cared about when I got back was enjoying life to the full I spent all my money going on holidays I'd buy a flashy motor I would um, go out and enjoy myself with friends travel the world and and it was because I knew that I was going back out there and I thought I could die in two years time again and it happened exactly the same thing I went back out in 2009 for a winter tour um, and the same thing, I, I knew that I was going back. We got warmed off. You're going to be back out here again in two years' time, gents, you know, and, and, and you come home and that same cycle continues. So you worked as a, a JTAC, a Joint Terminal Attack Controller. What's that? So I'm the link between aircraft or unmanned drone and the ground commander. So an officer on the ground, I would be his right-hand man in that he would come to me if there was a kinetic effect needed um, on an enemy position. So... My job, I would coordinate airspace, so I would make sure that jets are not going to be flying into each other. It was my job to keep them safe, so I'd correctly distance them. In a layman's term, it's almost you could almost say it's a bit like an air traffic control in that you are, you're in control of that airspace and what comes in and out of that airspace. So if ground fires are firing, you'll make sure you know how high those ground fires are. You'll know where your aircraft are, so you'll make sure you position the aircraft with a thousand foot buffer so that we're not going to knock out any of our own aircraft from the skies. All of this, while this is happening, I'm then there to use those assets to conduct um, kinetic engagements. Okay, air traffic controller, that's a really useful analogy because we all know what that means. So you've got an eye over what's happening, you're nearby, but you're not right yeah. down there in the dirty and you're also not the guy flying the drone, you're, you're the middleman. Well, yeah, in, in a sense, you, you could say that you're not in, you're not in a tower by any stretch. You, you're you're right there with them. You're you're there on the company commander's shoulder. So the officer there, you know, you'd be one bound behind the front guys being shot at. But you, you know, you, you're equally at risk in that there's there's rounds coming over. Previous tours, I would been the guy at the front. You know, the bayonet. You know, the the point, the sharp end of the business. Let's say. But now in this role as a JTAC, you were just slightly behind that lead platoon, and you would be there controlling that airspace so if they then come under contact i'm there to then coordinate and make sure that i relay to the aircraft exactly where every one of our guys were so we didn't have any fratricide or no no there was no blue on blues but at the same time you are looking mostly at a screen is that right yeah that so you can either have a portable screen that you just carry with you and what's being played on that screen is the footage from like a live feed from the aircraft or whatever asset it is whether that be a predator unmanned drone or reaper drone and 
I'm then controlling that pilot exactly where I want them to look into and exactly where I want them to then conduct that strike safely so that none of our own guys are getting injured when you're calling in close air support. Is that a slightly alienating feeling? being at once there but also distant from it i'm sort of imagining a bit like when you see a a film director looking at their monitor you know they're on set but they're they're looking down at a camera that's exactly what it is you get so involved on what's happening on that screen because that's that's your information you want to make sure you know where everyone is but you've also you can look up every so often and tap your company commander on the shoulder where you know where are the guys where are our guys exactly right now and then you're then straight back into that screen briefing the pilot up, telling him exactly what he or she needs to know. So it's a funny combination then, isn't it, of being very up close and personal and also quite remote. You're you're sort of ordering things or enabling things to be ordered that happen from a distance, but you're right there and see the effects of it. Absolutely, yeah. It's, it is, it's surreal. I mean, one part of my job was that. So again, as a JTAC, your, your role is to either be embed with those troops, but a lot of the times it was more like that eye in the sky. Even though I was in Helmand, in Afghanistan, I would be in the forward operating base or FOB and I would there, I'd have my 60-inch screen TV in front of me. I would have, you know, all the assets under the sun and the guys would go out um, and say inevitably, come under contact and I would have all of these different feeds, these different um, video footage coming into me and I would then look to make those calls on on, on who I saw. So I'd either call back to... Um, the echelon to, to to get basically an airframe in the sky so I could then get an effect for my company commander. So it's like days and days of prep very often and then a few minutes of intense activity, I guess. Oh, goodness, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I remember, like I say, I, was, I, I used to sleep outside the operations room just on a piece of cardboard for just to get a couple of hours sleep sometimes. I would be there for 12 hours, you know, they're looking at a screen, looking at different free feeds from these drones and, and from, from jets and it would take you a week to build up um, a pattern of life. And, and they're very smart. You know, they were very smart, our enemy, and I take my hat off to them. And they they knew what they were doing. They knew the ground. They knew where to hide. And it would take you just sometimes so long to piece that puzzle together and go, right, we've got him. And then you could then use all of the, all of the information or intelligence you gathered to, you know, conduct that strike effectively, knowing that you're hitting that right person Um you know they're confirmed as being a part of uh, you know the insurgency and you would then carry out that strike so tell me through what it actually looked like the operations room that you were in oh it's really i mean it's basic stuff it's basic stuff because ultimately you're living in something that's just been thrown up quickly by the royal engineers just to give you some protection from mortars from small arms fire and you've got like uh, you've got maybe one laptop a ruggedized laptop which the commanders do all of their work on You've got a few radios. Um, you've got maybe a telephone that goes back to Bastion or Camp Bastion or the main HQ. But yeah, the, the main thing there really for my role was there was a satellite radio and a huge television screen that was plugged into a receiver that was just on the roof. The receiver would pick up the the, the footage or the feed, we called it, from, from either jets, from the Predator or Reaper drones. It was that disconnect. You've got it there on HD and a screen in front of you you know, a huge screen in the operations room. And it almost was a bit like a video game, I suppose, in that you're there one minute and you, you just see, you know, people getting blown to smithereens in front of you. Um, and it does take that away from it, I suppose. When I'm there on the ground getting shot at and you call in an attack helicopter or someone to get you out of the shit, it's completely different to be sat there behind a screen almost playing a video game, I suppose. What was the hardest day? 
so yeah, for me, the the hardest day for me was uh, watching one of my uh, colleagues be shot basically on TV, and I and I couldn't do nothing about it. Um, I I had nothing there, and I just felt helpless. Um, five minutes prior to him being shot in the head, um, I did have jets there, and, and and because of the rules of engagement that we had imposed upon us, and you know, albeit some say for the right reasons. We couldn't do nothing about it. We had intelligence that these guys were bad guys. In, in my opinion, if it was down to me, I would have made the call and I would have I would have engaged these insurgents and I would have closed down that threat. But I wasn't able to do so. And the American pilot flying the F-16 at the time said, well, I've got to go. I've run out of fuel. He said, I'll be back in 20 minutes. Um, so he went to the tanker to refuel. And it was while um, he went to refuel at the tanker that, um, like I say, my colleague got shot and I just couldn't do nothing. Um, I just remember him coming back on station 20 minutes later um, during the ensuing uh, gun battle, and he was he was he was fucking angry. He was super super angry. He said those those insurgents down there know your rules of engagements better than you do. He said that shouldn't have happened. He was just absolutely gutted that a British soldier had just been shot in the head, and and he couldn't do nothing about it. And that that footage that you were watching at the time live, what was filming it? Was it? Was it a soldier's cam behind him, or no? It was it was a helium balloon, and it had a high powered camera underneath that would float, and they would float three thousand feet up in the air. The troops on the ground were saying to me, "Look, we think we've got some bad guys, you know, surrounding us. Can you take a look?" And and like I said, I was looking into the area and knew that there was uh, yeah something not right. But we seen kind of flashes of what we thought were weapon systems. They were going into known firing points. All of this stuff, it built up evidence for you to be able to go, okay, we're going to prosecute or strike that position. But um, the call was made to not not do so. And, and, and obviously then we were, we were in that situation. But the, for me, the, the hardest part was just that helpless feeling. Like it was almost like he was up on the roof by himself and I, I see him get shot and I almost wanted to reach out through that camera and, you know, just hold him, you know, help him and... and, and and I couldn't do that, so that yeah, that really that really hit me hard. I mean, you talked about how excited you were to go to Helmand the first time, having been in a ceremonial role. I imagine you felt very different when it was your final tour. I think the only thing that keeps you there, and the only thing that actually made me want to go on that second and third tour to Helmand, was the fact that I knew my friends were going there. I had very good friends that I'd made friends with either on that first tour or or thereafter. They joined after me and. And it, there was that element of, and I know so many people that would have got out the military after that first tour, but um, they ended up staying and go on to further tours because it's like, you know, you there is that brotherhood there and you, you literally see them as your, your family and you don't want to let them down. You don't want to say, well, I'm deciding to leave. Um, you're, on, you're on your own type thing. So you, you go on to stay and I feel there was an element of that with me for, without a doubt. What was life like when you left the army? Goodness. It's it's just a such another world. I mean, you get to spend weekends away, but when you've kind of thrown out, you know, you walk those, leave those gates for that final time. Um, yeah, it's it's just really hard. It's just getting used to adjusting to even just small things in life, just little simple things that you take for granted, and that in the military you're constantly always on the move. You you end up living from you know your your army grip bag we call it, and it's it's a, basically a bag or suitcase that you keep all of your items of personal possessions in it and you move from location to location to location and you never really unpack or call anywhere home and I found that really hard when I first left I it's really weird and it wasn't until um a relative said 
you need to bloody unpack your bags, Julian. You know, you're home for good now. That's it. It's you know, and I, I always used to live from my bags. I never really had anywhere that I called home. I would always sofa surf on family or friends or, um, and it was just really weird to get home. And she was like, my si- it was my sister. She said, you need to unpack your bags, Julian. You know, you're home now. Um, and it was just for weeks and weeks after first leaving, I never unpacked my bags. And and you were like 30 at this point. Yeah, yeah. It was only 2018. So you haven't got a family life to go back to because the family life that you left behind, unlike some of your older colleagues who had wives and kids and whatever, mm. was living with your mum and your and your five siblings. So yeah. you haven't got... You, you can't go back to being 16 when you're 30. <laughs> no, that was it. So it was kind of just... It was just really weird and it's kind of starting a whole new life, I suppose. And it's... Yeah, it's, it's been tough. It's been tough and I'm, I've been really lucky that I've had a supportive family. I've now got a supportive partner Um you know, who help me with these little things or point me in the right direction or so I feel really fortunate that I've got that, whereas I just know so many that don't and, and I can just see why it can get, you know, too much for some people when, when they leave when they haven't got that support network there. And that's something we've heard a lot of, isn't it? For years, for decades really. That when people leave the army there often isn't the the mental support there that there should be, considering these are people that were willing to give their lives for the for their country. I think the biggest problem is, and I've wrote about this, and I and I put to pen to paper a lot now with things. And one of the things I've I've come up with is you spend all of these years training for warfare, and then when it comes to you transitioning out the military, it's a case of two weeks and and, and you're out. You have a bit of a transitional period, but it's just not adequate enough. You 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 almost need to be retrained how to be a civvy, and because it's not there, you've still got this soldier's head on when you're in the military you go home you feel every single time and that's why I never unpacked for goodness knows how many weeks and months when I first left is because I, you almost feel like you're going to be called back but it's like no you're never going to be called back and it's being able to settle in as a civilian and I just think that if there was some sort of like a longer transitional period from leaving the military to before you then left because it takes so long for you to transition and I think a lot of the problem comes is where people leave. I left on my own choice. I wanted to leave. I got to a point where I said, look, I've, I've done enough. I need to now think about myself and my future. Um, whereas some people, they get injured, they whatever happens to them, and then it's almost like they're they're out the military overnight and they, they take it as a shot. I left on my decision. Some people don't leave on their decision. And I think a lot of the time they're the people that, um, struggle the most it's because the decision's out of their hand and you know I, I got to the point you know where I was you know I, I, I'd had suicidal thoughts you know and I felt let down I was you know angry that things weren't there to support and you know I tried to do everything that I could um, and it took an, an old colleague of mine an old uh, an officer friend who I in fact grew up with um, he went on to join the army as an officer because he went to uni and yeah, he's running a business now out in America and he ended up funding private therapy for me and, um, you know, things have been looking up since. What's been the most helpful technique that, that you've been taught for dealing with stuff? It's the perception, I suppose, is that being able to to see it from a different angle or from, yeah, see it from a different angle, the situation, although it played out in one way in my mind, I've seen it as X, Y, Z happening, but the reality of it, this happened and it's it's being able to understand that I can't change what happened but I can go back to either my former self and and kind of reconnect and, and, and tell myself the information that I now hold about that event or that situation. I can go back with the facts of exactly what happened and and really understand everything about it as opposed to still thinking about it in the in and how I felt 
at that time at that in that place in that in that space and then and then it's just yeah being able to then see it from a different perspective i suppose yeah that, and that's what i think is helping me a lot and if if you could talk to your 16 year old self <laughs> what would you tell him on his way to sign up that's the uh million dollar question um yeah i maybe i would just maybe ask myself the question is this for you is this the right thing to do is this what you really want I can at least secure in the knowledge, know that the things that I were doing at those times, I felt like they were the right things to, to do with the information, I suppose, that I was, that I had, you know, at my disposal and the knowledge that I had at that time. But the question is, would, would I do that now? I, I, I don't know the answer to that question. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a bloody tough one. And I, I don't know if I could ever answer that question because I don't think I'd like the answer. Julian Pereira. And the blog post that he wrote about leaving the army is still online. You can find that at jackbrew.co.uk, which is the website for the outdoor drinkware company that he's just set up, jakbrew.co.uk. And our thanks as well to producer Rebecca Grisdale-Sherry for her assistance setting up that interview. Now, if you've got a story that you would like to share with me on this podcast, send us a message now via the feedback form on our website, modernmanwith2ends.co.uk. We can't respond to every email personally. We do read them all, I promise. We love using your stories on the show. Uh, Right, sex advice up next. Alex Fox with some surprising news of what you can do with a kazoo. That's after this. Get your LED head torch ready. It is time to venture down into the foxhole. Alex Fox is here. Hello. Hello! I've just finished being a judge on the Love Honey annual designer sex toy competition. Ah, yes, I remember you urging entries for this. (laughs) Well, this was the first year that we've had a category for professional designers as well, and it really did make an impact. There was some majorly high-quality stuff coming in, but also lots and lots of funny entries. There was a huge emphasis um, on aliens and tentacles, but I think my favourite of all the, uh, the joke category ones was a ball gag that had a kazoo in it. (laughs) Which would actually be legitimately great if you're into being humiliated or maybe you wanted to set your slave a challenge that involved guessing that tune. Well, uh, time for your questions of sex. Uh, This one comes from an anonymous lady who says, I naturally seem to bear down a lot when I orgasm. This means I squirt inconvenient amounts almost every time and also that I often can't keep myself from farting when I'm close to coming. I've even, although only once or twice, pooed a little bit when I came. This is really holding back my sex life, as it means I often don't dare come properly when I'm with a partner. Men have also complained that I squeeze so hard I, quote, push them out of me or hurt their dick when I'm close to orgasm. I know there are exercises to help women build those muscles and learn to squirt, etc., but is there a way of putting the genie back in the bottle? The internet has been exactly zero help with this. Now, this isn't the first time that I've heard about this, so I'd like to reassure this person that they are not alone. Um, but I needed some expert input from a pelvic floor specialist. So I spoke uh-huh. to a woman named Elaine Miller, um, who also goes by the name Gussie Grippers. And we think one of the main problems that this woman m- might be experiencing is what's called a hypertonic pelvic floor. It's, it involves the, the pelvic floor being too tense and too tight and when those muscles are contracted all the time. 
Um, there are a variety of things that can cause this. One of the primary ones is anxiety, um, mm. which might actually go back quite an, uh, quite a long way. It can be quite an, uh, an old, deep-rooted thing. Um, we see hypertonic pelvic floors in people who maybe had body consciousness issues as, as young teenagers or even as children, where they've been holding their tummy in for such a long time to appear slim and breathing in their chest rather than down into their stomach and, and below the, uh, like right into their rib cage and their diaphragm um and they've been it's so interesting because it's sort of a cliche isn't it that someone might be so anxious that they kind of tighten up um but th- the fact that it might literally affect your asshole is not something that people really talk about very much well it it sets up what's known as a biomechanical cascade um which means your pelvic floor never relaxes you you have kept your yourself sucked in for so long that your your body forgets how not to suck and that Mm. does ironically suck quite a lot for you when it has this impact on your sex life um it's not always to do with anxiety though um we see it in quite a lot in people who do um high amount of high impact exercise so things like long distance running or gymnastics the pelvic floor just becomes so used to holding itself for impact that again it forgets how to relax things like injuries nerve damage uh vulvodynia which is unexplained vulval pain uh um, which causes you to kind of clench and 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 tense up. Uh, childbirth, pregnancy, all of those things can also cause a hypertonic pelvic floor. It's interesting to me that it's linked to squirting. I mean, do you think it is linked? Because squirting is something that's actually prized by a lot of women as a goal and by a lot of men as some sort of, you know, crowning glory on their sexual prowess and fetishized. Well, we've had many a natter and chatter about whether or not the liquid expelled from a, from a woman's body when she squirts is we or not. Uh, and I've done a lot of work to assure people that it doesn't really matter if they're having a, as long as they're having a nice time. In this case, <laughs> <laughs> in this case, I kind of want to flip reverse that. And with no shame, I'd like to suggest that there's a possibility in this case that this woman is misdiagnosing something that she begin, believes to be squirting actually to be urinary incontinence. Right. If you're letting go of right. gases and feces because you are, in her words, bearing down so much during orgasm, it's likely yeah. that that propulsion is also going to force out we. It's, it's going to make you urinate. Orgasm involves extra contractions of the vaginal muscles and of the pelvic floor area, everything around there. Um, Elaine gave me a brilliant simile for this. She said, imagine that you're riding a bicycle up a hill and that you're working your legs as hard as you possibly can. You're in the best gear that you've got. And then suddenly the hill gets steeper and you just do not have any more energy and you have to get off your bike and push it up the hill. Mm -hmm. If this woman is already tense to the max all of the time, an orgasm could be the equivalent of that hill becoming steeper and the bicycle of her body not being able to hack it and essentially working to exhaustion, which is why... Uh, it's giving up. The problem with the analogy, though, is obviously if your cycle route home involves a big hill, you get the bus. But I mean, this woman, this woman wants to continue having sex. So what can we suggest to her? Oh, as a first port of call, this woman should just go to the GP, get some tests run, check that there aren't any things like uh, polyps or ovarian cysts or hemorrhoids or anything extra that might be in the way down there that's that's pressing against her uh, womb and her vaginal area during orgasm and causing that extra pressure. But once you've ruled that out, 
let's look at breathing, which I know sounds really trite and wicky wicky woo wah and hippified and me like saying, oh, all you need to do is breathe. How annoying. <laughs> <laughs> but actually, um, if you lay on the floor and practice what's known as abdominal breathing, which is where you lay down, put one hand on your chest and the other hand on your tummy. What you want is for the hand on your tummy to move much more than the hand on your chest. If, you're, if the hand on your chest is rising and falling more, then that indicates that you're breathing only in the top half of your body. And that, that would, that's very indicative of a hypertense pelvic floor. Mm-hmm. Um, another thing that can help is a sensate focus program. It's a, a practice that helps you become more aware of everything that you're feeling and to focus in on sensation. One of the problems with identifying exactly what is wrong in a situation like this is that the nerve supply to the vaginal area and our ability to isolate where where um, sensations are coming from in the pelvic region is actually not great. Um, this is why people who have appendicitis don't go to the doctor until things are really bad. It's difficult to feel that there is an issue until it becomes quite intense. Uh, Now this might not be quite right for this particular person but if you are struggling to become bodily aware a a psychosomatic sexual therapist might be able to help. The somatic bit there refers to consensual touch of the body and um, with with gloved hands um, a, a, a practitioner can actually touch inside of you and help you to locate what your muscles should be doing. And regarding the psycho part of that, I mean, you know, you've talked about how there are physical manifestations of this and how it could be a whole range of different things going on in this lady's nethers. But there is a mental part of it as well, isn't there? Because what she's basically saying is, where every time I have sex, I'm trying not to come. Oh, God, um, yeah. In a sense, she's sort of never having sex, if that's what she's thinking the whole time. No, and... <sighs> I'd be really interested to know as well whether she's still experiencing these losses of control when she's orgasming alone. Mm. Um, Because if it's only happening with a partner, that actually could be indicative of something slightly different. Um, There's a nerve that runs from the cervix. It supplies the cervix and it goes all the way up the body uh, to the facial region called the vagus nerve. If that gets hit or pummeled repeatedly, for instance, during very deeply penetrative, quite pounding sex, um, it can trigger what's known as a vasovagal attack. Um, It makes you feel quite woozy, unhappy. Uh, It can cause a a potentially for you to almost faint. So that might be linked to this loss of muscular control. Uh, Your blood pressure can drop. Um, If she's having quite pounding sex with her partner uh, or has quite a shallow vaginal canal, then that might be the issue and a a change of position could help. Mm. Which would Um, account for why she might be hurting her partners as well in that scenario. See, I wonder whether that is entirely true because in our current society, a tight vagina is supposedly seen as a desirable thing. So it's quite possible that somebody in the past or maybe a couple of partners have said something like, oh, your pussy's so tight, meaning that to be a flattering thing and thinking that they're saying something uh, encouraging. But if you're someone who's actually worried about that, then you might internalise that as a criticism. And again, it adds to those layers of anxiety. Um, I've even had partners say, oh, you're pushing me out. And and 
for for them to see that as uh, something desirable, you know, they believe mm. that they've made me come so hard that I am propelling them like circus performers from my coochie cannon <laughs> out of my body. Um, one thing that she might find reassuring, and I don't mean to downplay her partner's pain if that is absolutely genuine, but men generally, when wanking with their hand, exert a lot more pressure and force than it is usually possible for the vaginal canal and the pelvic floor Just through some clenching, to produce. Yeah. yeah, 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 exactly. The likelihood of someone's vagina to be able to give that iron vice grip to actually exert severe pain uh, would be, it's not outside the realms of possibility, but it would be quite extreme. If, if it isn't possible to actually stop farting uh, when you're gumming, is it best to change the way you think about it? Is it best to get some hypnotherapy? Is it best to work on that rather than the physical manifestation? I think it would be best to work on all of these things in conjunction. Most people can be helped. There is usually a solution or a way of at least improving things both psychologically and physically in cases of uh, pelvic challenge such as this. Um, So there is hope here. If you get in touch with people like the International Pelvic Pain Society or the Pelvic Pain Support Network, talking to other people about their experiences can help give you a sense of relief that you're you're not on your tod with this. Um, Getting some therapy to help maybe laugh it off a little bit if if a fart mm. does happen farts happen to everybody and also um, i understand how it's mortifying for you but probably for your partner if you said to them at the beginning look at the end of this i'm going to let one go does that matter <laughs> i mean <laughs> they're still going to proceed frankly do you know what i mean it's not going to be a cock block is it really not for the right person and in fact no. as we have established multiple times before there are definitely people for whom uh, letting a fart fly would make would make the journey even more appealing fascinating the stuff we learn on this show and uh, thank you for sending this question in i hope you've heard that it's possible to have uh, an adult conversation about it yeah talk to your partner about it they probably don't think it is actually as a big deal as big a deal as it appears to be in your head Indeed. Well, we have reached our conclusion. Let's stop before we all blow off. Uh, If you have a question of sex that you'd like to send through to Alex, what do you have to do with it? Breeze on over to (laughs) modernmanwith2ends.co.uk and hit feedback. And also, if you want to check out uh, more of the work of Elaine Miller, a.k.a. Gusset Grippers, uh, then you can find her on Twitter at Gussy Grips and Instagram at Gusset underscore Grippers. And with that, we have very nearly reached the end of this month's Modern Man, but there is just time to appoint a new Manbassador. It is Joe in Colorado who says, Ollie, your podcast has quickly become one of my favourites. If appointed Manbassador for the state of Colorado, I solemnly swear I'll continue to spread word of your excellent show everywhere I go. I've sent you beer money, but since you've become co-workers of mine as I work from home, you're welcome to whatever coffee is on, and also anything else that's unlabeled in the fridge. Uh, Thank you, Joe. Uh, I will help myself to the uh, blue cheese dressing and the seedless grapes. Cheers. I now pronounce you Manbassador for Colorado. Congratulations. Our theme music is by Django Django. I've been Ollie Mann, the producer Matt Hill, and we'll see you with something new on our new release date of the 10th of September.
Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip <laughs> off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revelhorwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.